sometimes you do have to kind of take that step back to move forward. And, you know, six years later, I'm now the head music supervisor at the company. So, you know, it was a worthwhile move. Hey, Sky. Hey, Jenny. Uh, well, it's the end of the summer, but we're still uh, working hard, getting some great new Rough Cut episodes in the works for the fall. Yeah, yeah. We've got a bunch of new episodes coming out this fall, getting back on a regular schedule. And we wanted to kick that off with a what I think is kind of a I think it's an unusual topic or unusual episode um, for Rough Cut, wouldn't you say? I, I would. I would. I mean, you know, as filmmakers, we think about the video, what we're capturing and the audio, but music is a whole other realm. And sometimes we don't give enough thought until the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who's listening, who's made films can attest to the fact that like, once you lay down music, it really starts to feel cinematic and feel like a film. Yep. And our guest today, Justin Feldman, his whole job is music. He's a music supervisor and he's worked on a lot of big projects. I feel like I see his name pop up all the time in the credits. He's worked on The Last Dance, the doc series on Michael Jordan, which was incredible. But he's also worked on narrative series like Silicon Valley and Dave. We talk about what a music supervisor does, how early filmmakers should start thinking about licensing music, if they are licensing music, and what music can do for a documentary. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, music is that thing that once you lay it down, once you find the right music, I mean, it changes everything. It's that emotional pull that draws your audience into the direction that you want them to be drawn into if if you go that route. So um, an integral conversation, and I'm really excited to hear what what y'all dove into. I really enjoyed my conversation uh, with Justin. So with that, this is Justin Feldman, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Justin, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Our first time having like a strictly music person on. Mm -hmm. Can you just start out by explaining like super broadly what a music supervisor is? Yeah. So a music supervisor is responsible for all the music that is in a project, whether that is licensed music that we're using as score that's being added in post, whether it's uh, working on on-camera performances, doesn't happen too much in the documentary space that's more for scripted and narrative projects. But if there's something that's in an on-camera performance, we're helping uh, organize that and, and make sure that everybody's being paid correctly. And then it's also, you know, different project by project. Sometimes we help with finding the composer and even crafting the score along with the composer. And it's mostly just also managing our budgets because we have different budgets depending on the distributor, where it's going to actually be premiering, whether it's just on a streamer or theatrical or something like that. So it's kind of just overseeing pretty much everything music-related in the project. Hmm. And I know that you've worked on both documentary and narrative projects. How does the job differ whether you're doing, you know, documentary or narrative? Yeah, so there's definitely a little bit more creative license in a narrative project because we work on a project like Dave or Silicon Valley, projects that I've worked on. And we're being relied on to help with the creative, help find songs for specific scenes, things like that. But for documentaries, especially with the music documentary, if you're doing a project on, you know, Biggie Smalls or Cypress Hill or something like that, you know, you're pretty much using the music from those artists. So sometimes we do help, you know, find music from their catalogs. For the most part, we want to use, you know, the more recognizable stuff. But sometimes, especially with older hip hop, 
some songs are not even licensable because there are sample issues. This was, you know, back in recorded back in the nineties and there's a writer that, you know, is maybe deceased or we can no longer find, or there's just certain issues. So sometimes we help navigate what songs are just, you know, we can actually use. So definitely a little more creative license in narrative projects. Not to say we don't help creatively on the documentaries. Um, for those, mostly we focus on more underscore type things or say in the Biggie Smalls project, there's a segment where he talks about uh, his family's from Jamaica and he would go to Jamaica quite often. And, you know, we want to use some, you know, reggae music or, you know, music from that area. So we'll help find music um, to help really sell the setting and what the subject of the documentary is talking about. I imagine this probably varies from project to project, mm -hmm. but at what stage in production does a music supervisor usually come in? Like with the Biggie Smalls documentary, I imagine like you would have to get someone in pretty early in the process to make sure you even have rights to <laughs> that music. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, music supervisors are actually one of the only crew members that are on from the pre-production from the very beginning all the way through post. Um, we're on when we are talking about the conception of the project itself, because we need to speak with the label owners and the publishers of the subject to talk about, you know, the project that we have, again, to help us navigate what songs to stay away from, because there may be a sample issue or something like that. And we also start talking with the management from the subject themselves or from the state, because maybe the subject is you know, no longer with us, as in the case of Biggie Smalls, we've done Rick James, so we were dealing with their state. And yeah, just kind of setting up what our budget looks like, how many songs we can actually use in these projects, because we need to kind of figure that out so that our editors can be able to run with that, run with that information and be able to, you know, not go overboard with the music. And then all of a sudden halfway through, we're like, hey, you have to strip out half that music. Sorry about that. So it's always good to kind of be involved as soon as possible. Yeah, totally. It sounds like your job is kind of a mix of like creativity and legal stuff and licensing. And is it a mix of both? How, how much of it is creative and how much of it is logistics? Oh, absolutely. Definitely a mix of both. And, you know, sometimes we'll have a new intern come into our office and, you know, they know us because we work on Silicon Valley or Dave or we did Entourage or CSI back in the day. And they come to us and they're like, I have a great playlist for Dave and for Silicon Valley. And I'm like, Great. Love to hear your ideas, but also can you help us, you know, save all these documents, manage our spreadsheets, um, you know, help us research ownership information on the master recordings and the publishing. So it, it's not just strictly creative, as a lot of people do think that's the case when they, you know, first hear about the industry or, or want to join the industry. Mm. Well, wow, that's a lot at once. On the creative side of your job, do you ever watch documentaries or films and I guess, identify mistakes that they made when it came to music choice? And can you, you don't have to name any specific films, obviously, but can you talk about like common mistakes you see? Yeah, it, it's either identifying mistakes or sometimes just, I'm just in awe about the amount of music that they're using. I remember my wife and I, you know, a couple months ago, were watching the, the Kanye documentary and I, I didn't work on that. Um, but, you know, I was just in awe about all the music that needed to be cleared. And I kind of kept making comments to her about like when Kanye is kind of singing something, you know, uh, on the streets and he's just off the top of his head, that has to technically be cleared because he is a obviously signed to a label and he has a publisher. And yeah, it's not a song that's released, but we would have to go to that publisher and say, hey, he just did this freestyle. We're going to have to kind of figure out how to register this as a real song so that we can actually pay for it. 
So yeah, I, I definitely will notice that. Or sometimes it's a song that I have tried to clear in the past for another project. Uh, and for one reason or another, it's just not licensable. And I've noticed that other people have used it. And I can tell that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, they're using it without proper permission, or maybe they're using a different version of the recording to kind of get around things. Because if a song has a sample issue on the master side, you can use a cover of the recording that doesn't have that sample, but it may not be from that same artist. So you can, if you listen to it, you can kind of hear that it's it's not quite the same, the original recording, hmm. and that they did this to kind of get around potential issues. So maybe the regular person can't quite, doesn't really understand that difference or hear even hear the difference, but it's definitely something that I recognize. I mean, this is maybe also a question for like an entertainment lawyer, but mm. how concerned should like indie documentary filmmakers be about uh let's say one of their subjects is in like a supermarket and there's like a mariah carey song playing in the background or something like should they be concerned about getting sued by her record company or whoever owns the rights to that song yes and no in the documentary space um fair use is used quite often um fair use is a part of copyright law and it allows uh, any type of media to use music without a license for particular reasons. And that's typically for educational purposes. Um, parody is also covered under copyright law or under fair use, excuse me. So even if it's like Saturday Night Live and they're making up a parody of a, some song, um, they don't necessarily have to clear that because that's considered safe under uh, fair use. That being said, I I've done enough documentaries that I have a pretty good idea of what can be fair use and what can't. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I I'm not a lawyer. So we do have, we do work with attorneys that are specialized in fair use law and you know we will have very in-depth conversations with them they'll see the cuts and they'll let us know hey you're using this uh, at the right amount of time this is you know approved under fair use law or you know you're using way too much of it because with fair use you're only allowed to use the amount of a copyrighted material that proves your point mm -hmm. so say biggie says hey i was really influenced by big daddy kane when i was growing up and then we show a five-second clip of a Big Daddy Kane music video. Typically, that's good under fair use because the material is uh, supporting the commentary that is being made. But after he makes that comment and we use that song for a full minute, and it's now being played under subsequent interviews about other things, and that is not fair use. So we have to make that determination. You know, is it just integral to this scene and we really want it to be playing for this full minute? And we'd rather license it. So that's definitely a conversation that we have. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting conversation because, I mean, fair use is obviously used a lot in journalism and in mm -hmm. news, but documentary is like this weird kind of a hybrid place between news and entertainment. So I imagine it gets trickier there. It does. And the crazy thing about fair use is you never really know whether you're actually in breach of fair use or not until you are literally in front of a judge and a judge is deciding. Mm-hmm. What is the path to becoming a music supervisor? Like, how did you get into it? Yeah, well, I was, uh, when I was in college, I went to uh, USC and uh, I was actually a political science major at SC when I first got there and I just really wasn't feeling it. And I decided, hey, I'm gonna take a film class. I hear they have a great film program. Like, I might as well take like the intro class. And I ended up falling in love with it. And so I immediately transferred over. But um, I remember just when I was, you know, in college with my friends, we were watching um, Entourage was one of our favorite shows. And I just remember one day watching that and thinking, that's, that music is great. Like that's someone's job. What is that? <laughs> and I kind of had to do a little digging and I actually found the company that 
did that show, um, which is actually Pentagon Running. It's the company that I work for now. But it definitely took me quite a few years to actually get in the industry because there's not a whole lot of opportunities and openings that happen every year. For a couple years out of college, I was a production assistant for three or four years. And then at one point, I became an assistant editor. And during this whole time, I kind of just looked looking at job boards and other places, just kind of waiting for that opportunity to arise. And then one day, I saw an opportunity at this one company called Ammo Creative, which is a boutique trailer house. They work on movie trailers and advertising. And they needed somebody to run the music department, but also knew how to run Avid and had editing experience. And I kind of was just a perfect fit for me because I had that editing experience. Also, you know, I wanted to be a music supervisor. So they kind of, you know, gave me that chance. And I was there for about two years. And then after, after working at the, the trailer house, I was freelance for a little bit. And then I saw a position open up at this company, Hip Gun Running, which, again, I had my eye on for quite a while because of Entourage. And they did Silicon Valley, which was on the air at the time and was one of my personal favorite shows. And it was an opening for an internship. And, you know, it was kind of a step back for me because I was an actual music supervisor for a couple of years, but I figured, hey, this is, you know, in a different industry and there's a lot more, you know, licensing involved and back-end business stuff involved in the film and TV space than there is in trailers. So I just made the decision, you know, it was a worthwhile move. And, you know, six years later, I'm now the head music supervisor at the company. So I put in my time, but it was definitely a worthwhile move. Yeah, that is true. Sometimes in your career, you do have to kind of take a step back to be in the place that you want to be and then grow from there. Absolutely. But that's amazing, the kind of like rise you've been able to have in that in that company. Yeah, it took some time, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm at where I need to be right now. So it, it, at the end of the day, it worked out. Yeah. Can you describe the creative process with the director? Or I don't know who you're working with most of the time, if it's the director or the producers, but what that kind of collaboration looks like? Absolutely. It really differs from project to project. Sometimes you work hand in hand with the director or the main showrunner. Sometimes you're working with a producer and maybe directly with the editors. Um, on a project like Dave, you know, Dave himself is uh, an artist himself and he's very involved with the music. So I work hand in hand with him, um, you know, finding music. A lot of times he has a lot of suggestions himself. Sometimes we'll help with even finding some cameos um, for the episodes themselves or, you know, certain rappers who appear in the episodes. But other projects, like we worked on this project about Video Music Box, which was a, uh, they're based in New York and they showed a lot of hip hop music videos and things like that before really MTV kind of showed a lot of hip hop and they were kind of just primarily pop and rock and things like that. And so we did a whole documentary on that, which kind of uh, really started the careers for a lot of hip hop artists during the time from the Fugees to De La Soul, Nas, Tribe Called Quest. Um, and Nas actually directed that project. Um, though I didn't really work uh, on that particular project, didn't work as much hand in hand with him. It was more of the main producer that we kind of did most of our, our work with. And he kind of was helped facilitated the conversation with him because as you can imagine, you know, Nas is a busy man. So you know, it's uh, they kind of distilled all the needed information and we kind of went back and forth with the producer who also had a lot of creative input as well. And uh, to really kind of find the sound of the, of the show and figure out what music we can use, what music we can't use, because, you know, notoriously hip hop is very tough to license, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about 90s hip hop, late 80s, because during that time, you know, these guys were sampling stuff and they weren't necessarily clearing all these samples. So there's a lot of time where we have to 
you really do dig in and, and figure out what samples are in these songs, if they were cleared or not. Sometimes if they're not cleared, we'll go out and we'll do our own research. And sometimes we can clear the sample separately. Hmm. But um, yeah. Can you talk about like an example of a documentary where you feel like the music was used really well and like really served the story? Yeah, I would say we did this project called Hip Hop Uncovered. And it kind of talked about all these kind of behind the scenes, people who may be not known to the general public. They kind of were either music managers or just very involved with that scene and helped make connections to really get people's careers to take off. And we were very fortunate to have a you know pretty significant budget on that project. So we were able to use some really big you know songs from Dre and Jay-Z and Tribe Called Quest and some other really big artists, Kendrick. And you know we were able to use some of these really recognizable songs to really kind of show the audience like if it wasn't for this one guy you know you wouldn't have heard of nwa you may not have heard of Nicki minaj or these other people so it was really great to be able to use you know this music to really kind of set the tone for the project and kind of really hammer into the audience that you know these songs that everybody knows that's in the general zeitgeist these are the people who were kind of responsible for that type of stuff so felt it really kind of lended itself to the narrative of the project and really bolstered the project itself. Yeah, totally. Like you're able to like show the impact with the music. Yeah. What about on like projects like The Last Dance where music isn't the subject of the film? Mm. What is your approach to using music in something like that? Yeah, well, we were lucky for that because it was a project on Michael Jordan. Everybody wanted to be involved with it. So that was great. Basically, all we had to say the words was Michael Jordan documentary and people were jumping at it. So we were very fortunate enough to be able to use a lot of great music. And in that, our director, Jason Heer, uh, was very adamant about using music in the eras that we were you know, in the documentary. So if we're talking about a scene in the late 80s, you know, 1987, we wanted to use music that was either from 1987 or before that. We didn't want anything that was posted that people would be like, oh, that song wasn't released during that time. So... We really tried to use the music to help ground the audience into the era, the time that we were talking about. Hmm. And are you working with composers on like a creative level too, to like shape the music or is that more of the director's role? It's really different project to project. There are some projects where we do work hand in hand with the composers. There are projects that we even help find the composers for the projects. Um, and then other projects that it's the director or the maybe one of the lead producers kind of takes those reins and is the one kind of help dictating that. But, you know, sometimes we'll get cuts back and we can kind of give some notes about, Hey, we really think the music here, maybe it's, it's not as uh, driving as it really needs to be. It's really doesn't really help the pace. We need something that's a little bit more energetic that can really help us move through the scene to help with the pace so that it doesn't you know drag as much. You sort of alluded to this earlier about in terms of like what stage people should bring in a, a music supervisor, but let's say it's somebody who's not working on like a big series, but maybe um, a fully funded documentary feature. Mm -hmm. At what stage should they reach out to a, to a music supervisor about their project? Yeah, I mean, I, I would still say as early as possible just to kind of help avoid any roadblocks, especially mm. if there's any on-camera performances. You know, a nightmare scenario for us is that a production films a musical performance on camera, but the song's not cleared. Because what if down the line we find out that the, for some reason the song's unclearable, we can't find a certain writer, or the song is way too expensive for our budget, and we don't want to have to tell production, you just wasted a day filming because we can't use the song anymore. Because if the audio is tied to the video, you can't remove it, you can't put another song over it. That, yeah. That'll just be weird, you know, this lip flap and it'll just be very awkward. So, you know, 
we definitely want to be involved before any performances are filmed mm-hmm. so that we can make sure everything does the music that they're using is you know licensed properly but we also worked on projects where they have a full cut and everything is pretty much good to go they've done they went through the whole process and they come to us and they say hey we have these 10 songs in, in the cut um can you help us clear this stuff um so you know again we like to be involved as early as possible because again we don't want people to waste their time working with music that they can't use but you know there are times where we do come in at the very end and we're just kind of you know making sure eyes are dotted t's are crossed and you know there are no issues mm. what should productions expect in terms of a fee for working with a music supervisor it doesn't have to be your fee or anything but in general kind of what is the range for like a feature film yeah, but we're, you know, we can be flexible with our fee, but a lot of things that we base our fees off are based on the timeline. If it's something that they need things done very quickly, that'll cost a little bit more because we have to give all our attention to that project versus some of our other projects. The amount of music that's being used, if you're using 10, 15 different pieces of music, that's obviously way more work than if you're just using two songs. So those are definitely two of the bigger factors. If it's something that we really are passionate about, you know, we'll we'll work with it. We'll work with their budgets because we just believe in the project and we just want to be on it. Yeah. Um, are there any trends that you're seeing either by working on documentaries or watching them in the way that filmmakers are using music in their films? Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes less is more and it's can be kind of a contradiction for music supervisor to say this is like, Hey, you're using too much music, but you know, we always try to advise our productions not to have wall to wall music. So I've definitely been seeing a trend there where people are using music way more deliberately and letting the silence almost speak for itself sometimes. Sometimes you don't want the music to kind of dictate what the audience should be feeling because you don't want to be leading the horse to water. You want them to kind of naturally come to these you know, emotions based on the subject matter. So I've definitely been seeing a trend there where if there really isn't a big impactful emotional scene, maybe let that scene breathe a little bit more and maybe mm. have music come in a little bit later than than when it would, you know, used to be starting, you know, five, 10 years ago, where you're really using that music and, you know, say that uh, OC scene, uh, you know, where she uh, shoots the one guy and there's that one song. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was like... I, I know the scene. I don't remember the name of the song, but yeah. Yeah. But it was kind of, the music was, you know, everybody was talking about it and yeah. it really kind of helps carry the emotionality of the scene. But now we're seeing, you know, let that action play out a little bit more and bring that song in at the very end of the scene when kind of the audience have already kind of arrived at these emotions and the music is now not dictating the emotions but kind of helps supporting what's already you know being felt yeah yeah i think that was like the crux of the joke with that around that scene was that the music was like the most distracting thing exactly i think sarah alive did a whole skit on it yeah i'm blanking on the name of the song but yeah what's the turnaround time for clearing music for a film yeah, we get asked this question often, or we always say, you know, give us as much time as possible because it's hard to know. Sometimes we clear a song in a few days, and sometimes it can take weeks, if not months, because at a certain point, it's out of our hands. We're reaching out to the labels, but they have to reach out to their approval parties who may be, you know, a manager for a particular artist, maybe the artist themselves, or a business manager, or even an attorney. And we can't control how long it takes for that person to respond. But at the same time, you know, for episodic series like a Dave or Silicon Valley, or we did Gotham back in the day. And back then there was 22 episodes, I believe in the whole season. So we're pretty much, you know, once production starts, we're kind of working on one episode a week. 
So we really only have about a week to actually clear the music before we have to get on to the next episode. So, you know, TV can be a lot faster, but also that's nice sometimes because, you know, with films, there's so much more time to kind of really dive into these scenes, which we want to get it right. But sometimes when you have three or four months, people can kind of be, you know, going between certain songs and we kind of just need them to make a decision. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to just have that production schedule on your TV where it's like, you don't have any time. You really mm-hmm. have to, you know, make a decision so we can, you know, kind of move on to the next episode. One thing I've always been curious about in this process is in an edit, you're trying out lots of different things. You may be trying out different songs and maybe that scene is just going to be cut altogether. Mm-hmm. Are there ever any options for like, hey, we're thinking about using this song? Like, you know, do you actually, do you not even pay the licensing fee until it actually is like going to be published? Or can you just kind of give them a like, hey, what would it cost if we were to use this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we have multiple options for scenes all the time. Maybe the first choice, we've been told that there might be a sample issue or, you know, we've been working on it for two weeks and we still haven't been able to find this one writer or we haven't got a response back. So we'll, we'll advise our productions, you know, let's pick a backup song just in case We'll clear both of them. And just because you clear something, you're not obligated to pay for it until the very end. We have these like short form clearance requests and it states, you know, the, the fee we're proposing, the proposed use, all that stuff. And we'll get an approval back from the labels or the publishers. And then once the project is fully locked and it's mixed and we know exactly what's being used, we'll circle back with all the license holders and we'll tell them what songs are confirmed in the project and what songs, you know, aren't being used. At that point, we we move to like the you know the long form licensing agreement. That's when we are locked into a song and actually have to pay for it. How can folks get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you? Yeah, they can just reach out to our company page. We have a email, a general email address. It's uh, info at htgr.net, and that goes to myself as well as you know others at the company, and they can reach out to us about whether they want to work with us on a project or they want to submit music to us for potential use in one of our projects. So that's definitely the best way. Rough Cuts hosted and produced by Jenny Butler and Sky Dylan Robbins. Abby Kittengor, Amy DiGiacomo, and Kaylee Fox Shannon are our booking producers. Audrey Horowitz is our editor and our original music is by Zach Wright. And this podcast is part of the Video Consortium, a global nonprofit media org that connects the world's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists to tell bold stories that catalyze positive change. You can become a member and join our global community of nonfiction storytellers at videoconsortium.org. And if you like the show, you can follow us on Instagram at, at roughcutpodcast or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. These are nonprofit endeavors with a mission to democratize the industry playing field for all. So if you want to support VC and this podcast, we would love if you'd head to videoconsortium.org to donate. Thanks for listening and see you next time.